In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Behold, I will send, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Our gospel lesson ended with the words that our Old Testament lesson began with. Especially during Advent, we consider how Scripture points us to what comes at the end by directing us to promises made at the beginning. God said he would do in the fullness of time what he did in the fullness of time. He sent his Son to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. God is faithful. God sent his prophets to prophesy since the world began, and God brought to pass what he promised through them. This same God continues to send messengers today to bring these promises to us and to drive them into our hearts. God continues to send us ministers. Jesus tells us in our gospel lesson how we are to regard John, who came before him, as more than a prophet, and Paul tells us in our epistle lesson how we are to regard all pastors who come after him as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. God is faithful. He continues to prepare us for what is coming. Therefore, each servant or minister must be found faithful. God is faithful to us by being faithful to his word. So God's servants are faithful to us by being faithful to the same word. God keeps his promises. His servants are judged, therefore, faithful to you when they are found faithful to God. When they point to God's word and say, God will surely do it. John the Baptist was faithful, and Jesus identifies him as the messenger that the prophet Malachi said would come. Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. His name means my messenger. Through Malachi, the Lord called John the Baptist my messenger. Same word, Malachi who will prepare my way before me. And then the Lord calls himself the messenger of the covenant. A messenger proclaims a message. The message of every messenger God sends is this. Listen to the message of this messenger, the Lord himself, who has a message for you. The word gospel means good news, or literally, good message. It is what the angel told the shepherds, Good tidings of great joy, which is for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The message of the gospel is the message of the covenant between God and man. It is the message of the Lord God himself, who became true man to save us from our sin. We are invited to hear it and to take it to heart. But we must be prepared for this message. There's no way of knowing how good this message of Jesus is if we're not prepared to hear it. Jesus sent John to prepare his way by telling John to preach what all the prophets had preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We're taught to repent by being told what we should repent of. The most obvious sentence I've ever written for a sermon. But go figure. As obvious as it sounds, the repeated reminders of the prophets and our own experience prove to us that we need continually be taught how we have broken God's law and, moreover, that we should stop breaking it. Repentance is not a mere 
unidentifiable feeling or longing for peace, nor is repentance merely a general feeling of guilt. When the fear of God is left out of repentance, it is no surprise that the world finds godless solutions to mankind's problems. But repentance is more than a vague recognition that things are not as they should be. To repent is to acknowledge that we have not done those things that God has told us to do, and that we have done those things that God has told us not to do. We are all sinners. John certainly preached this. He taught about original sin and how all men are innately morally corrupt by pointing at Jesus with his own finger. John identified him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he prepared his way by just as pointedly pointing to the sins he took away. He got specific. John did not come to make general observations about humanity. He came to prepare real sinners who really sinned. The law prepares us for repentance by teaching each one of us to make very specific observations about ourselves and our behavior, our thoughts, and our desires. Our longing for peace is very identifiable. Each of us has sinned against God who threatens to punish sinners for the sins that sinners commit. Sometimes we do only feel a general feeling of guilt. We cannot remember all our sins, nor even always trace our general feeling of guilt to one sin in particular. The preaching of the law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, helps us put our finger on it. Well, it's impossible to keep a record of every single sin. Well, that's not what repentance is. But we must beware of the temptation to turn sin into an abstract thing, as though the sin of the world were just that, the sin of the world. No. The sin of the world begins in our own hearts. It is real sin, real iniquity, real guilt. The doctrine of original sin is not a consolation that we're all just as bad as each other and that everyone is no better than another. No, for this, there stands one among us who has no sin, whose sandal strap John is not worthy to loose. He comes as a refiner's fire, and who can endure his coming? No, the doctrine of original sin is not chiefly meant to teach us that everyone's a sinner. What preparation is there in that for you? No, but to teach you that you are a sinner to teach you how deeply your sin infects you. The world needs a savior. Here is how the whole world is prepared for the message this savior brings. You need a savior. Repent. Acknowledge your corruption. Confess your sins to God. As far as the gospel records, however, John's message of repentance admittedly sounds pretty general, doesn't it? Having commanded fruits of repentance, he answered the questions of those who asked him how. He commanded charity and generosity of all. He told the tax collectors not to collect more than was owed, and soldiers not to abuse their authority over people or resent the authority over them. But they all asked John what they should do. Keeping the preaching of the law very general, and generally only ever getting specific when asked, is a relatively safe route for preachers to take. And here we have proof. As John sits in prison, that he had not taken the safe route. 
He had taken the faithful route. He got specific in condemning Herod's sin, when King Herod certainly did not ask for specifics. Herod had taken his brother's wife as his own, and John told him to repent. It was a public sin that called for public condemnation. And so John's public notoriety is not in being the great gospel preacher, but in the guy who called out the king, whose sin everyone knew about and knew that you're not supposed to condemn it, for condemning this guy who had power to turn him into some sort of martyr. Herod put him in prison, not for being a curiosity in the wilderness, decrying the universal corruption of all flesh, nor even for identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God. No, Herod put John in prison for pointing his finger to the sin that he was guilty of. From prison, John sent messengers to Jesus asking if he was the coming one or whether they should look for another. It's often asked whether John really doubted, or perhaps John was simply trying to get his disciples to stop lingering around his prison cell and go and hear and see for themselves what he had been pointing at all along. John was a sinner to be sure. He needed the savior he prepared others for, and so does every minister of the gospel. But this does not mean that we know what sins he was guilty of any more than your pastor knows what sins you're guilty of. But let us consider what kind of doubt John may have or may not have had so that we might examine what kind of offense the preaching of Christ most certainly does bring about. Well, it sounds silly to imagine that John had real, genuine, intellectual doubt. This same John had left in his mother's womb at the sound of Mary, who carried in herself the Lord, whose way he had come to prepare. And he prepared. God revealed to him all he needed to know and pay attention to, to direct all people to him. Behold the Lamb of God. And John witnessed the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus as a dove at his baptism and heard the voice that confirmed it. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased John had time to think in prison, and I suppose his thoughts were all he had at times. But what evidence was he weighing? Was he really reviewing the facts and struggling with seeming inconsistencies? If John had doubts, no, they were not intellectual doubts. They were doubts of impatient anticipation. They were doubts of the anxious heart of flesh, that the Spirit of God is always contending against in every heart that believes. How long, O Lord, is a common complaint in the book of Psalms? And what is the answer, answer to such doubts that are common to all Christian hearts? Was John wondering when he would be freed? What more was John expecting? Well, if he had truly had intellectual doubts, he... If he truly doubted whether or not Jesus was God, Jesus certainly addressed such doubts, didn't he? He told his disciples to send word, tell John what you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. Intellectual doubts are easy enough to address. And certainly when John encountered them, he was as pleased as any pastor since to dig into Scripture to provide answers. 
As challenging as it might sometimes be, every pastor worth his salt is very happy to be challenged about the content of what he is preaching. Where in the Bible does it say this? How can both these things be true? But doesn't the Bible say this too? When you are challenged by the content or lack of clarity in a sermon or Bible class, don't think for a second that asking your pastor for clarity or explanation or even proof is some sort of challenge to his authority. No, it is an appeal to God's authority. And don't be afraid that it's antagonistic or rude. Searching the scriptures for proof and clarity is among the pastor's favorite duties. So Jesus begins by addressing what may be honest intellectual doubt. He's happy to explain. The blind see, the lame walk, and so forth. But John already knows this. He has already heard his works. That's why John sent messengers to Jesus in the first place. And his works are good. Who would be offended by them? Jesus, John had not been prepared, preparing sinners not to be offended by miraculous works of kindness any more than the church needs to guard against people be offend, being offended by the good works that we do publicly for the world to see. No, John had been preparing sinners not to be offended by the gospel. So this is exactly what John needed to hear from Jesus. And the poor had the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Here was comfort for John. Here was the reassurance that his impatient heart begged for. Here's what he needed to hear that his preparation was fruitful. This was Jesus telling John, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I am the Lamb of God who saves you. You pointed well, and you did not point in vain. John wasn't thrown in prison for preaching facts that people weren't convinced of. He wasn't thrown in prison for providing too few proofs that Jesus was mighty or good. If so, the works that Jesus was doing would surely have vindicated John. No, John was not thrown in prison for, for fulfilling. John was not thrown in prison for fulfilling the most unpleasant and seemingly counterproductive task of the ministry. Not for a offending anybody's intellect. That is, he was thrown in prison for doing the most unpleasant thing because he wasn't thrown in prison for offending anyone's intellect, but for offending pride. He condemned sin, that nobody had any honest doubts about whether it was sin. Did Herod not know that he shouldn't have taken his brother's wife? Was this news to him? Was he unconvinced that he shouldn't have? Was the message of the law really something that challenged him intellectually? Of course not. But this is what sinners do. John came to prepare a highway into their hearts and they pretend that their reason is unconvinced. They hide behind their pretended intellectual skepticism in order to mask the offense of their own hearts. They pretend to not agree with what the law clearly says. Or they pretend to be ignorant of how and whether it truly applies to them in this or that tough circumstance. From skipping church to serve mammon to divorcing one's spouse without God's permission. 
from shacking up outside of marriage to gossiping about other people's problems. Claiming intellectual offense looks better than admitting to wounded pride. What intellectual challenge do we really face when confronted with such sins? What further proof do we need that we should repent and seek forgiveness for these? John preached the law. He made sinners of everyone. He prepared sinners not to be offended by the Savior who came with a saving message. He didn't preach the law just to stand up to kings. He didn't preach the law out of a stubborn refusal not to bend. He didn't preach the law because he knew he was right and everyone else was wrong. But he did stand up to kings. He did stand and refuse to be shaken by the wind of popular opinion. He did know he was right. But he preached the law not to satisfy some intellectual conviction of moral absolutism. He preached the law for the same reason that every servant of Christ must preach the law. Not to fix the world, but to prepare the world for salvation. To convict poor, miserable sinners of the sin that makes them miserable. And to direct them to Jesus. This is why John didn't preach the law with the palm of his hands. He preached pointedly what obstacles of pride and lust and laziness and idolatry and anger and revenge and covetousness may well stand in the way in all of our hearts. So that he might point just as squarely to Christ alone who came to bear the sin of the world. To preach a message of God's judgment is to offend. And so the greatest consolation of a minister approved by God, or for that matter, for a father who loves his son, but had to lay it out plainly for his son to hear what God threatened, that God threatens those who transgress his commandments. The greatest consolation is not found that I was right. No, it is found in the primary purpose of the messenger's preparation. That those who acknowledge the emptiness and poverty of their sinful hearts might learn from Jesus to take no offense at what he came to deliver. And he came with a message. John the messenger prepared for a message. He offended. The joy that Jesus sent back to him was this, that a greater message than, he was being, than, than his was being preached to those whom John prepared. The message of the law prepares for more than a message. It prepares for a messenger. It prepares for Jesus. The humbling message of the law leads to, is, is more than just a message for you to mull over and ponder and think about and weigh, but it is a message that brings Christ to you, who seeks to come into you, to bind the brokenhearted and convince you of the peace he wins for you with God and to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. God's servants are stewards of the mysteries of God. These mysteries bend your mind, they offend your reason, and by receiving especially the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, you are taught that the highways of God, your Savior, does not prepare a way by convincing you, but by telling your reason to be silent. 
It is a highway into your heart. It is a highway of humility that acknowledges your need for what Jesus has purchased for you with his body and blood, which he gives to you to eat and to drink for the forgiveness of all your sins. Crucified as king, by which he is our high priest, gave his life as an offering for sin. Yes, but it was not because of his power or his prayers that he was rejected. It was as our prophet. It was because of his message. Do not be offended by it. Be prepared. John wasn't concerned about how he was judged by men. John was not justified by the opinion of men any more than Paul was. They and every minister are judged by Christ. There is no need to judge any person before the time, before the Lord comes to reveal the hearts of all. God knows the pastor's weakness, and you may too. But God has sent pastors so that you might know your own. So for now, you must judge the message you hear. For by the message that God commands be preached in his name, your own heart is revealed. But moreover, God's heart is revealed. By his judgment of your sin, by the revelation of what lingers in your soul, you are prepared for that which has issued from the heart of God from eternity. His love toward you, his desire to rescue you. He is the messenger of the new covenant, established in his own blood. And herein you see God's heart revealed to you what is hidden to hard hearts, but he prepares us to see it. As we sing, and when o'er all my sins I'm sighing, into the Father's heart I'll gaze. For there is always to be found free mercy without end and bound. For us to believe this is the greatest consolation for every faithful pastor. For us to believe this is the greatest glory to God that we can give. For us to believe this, take it to heart, is our eternal salvation. It is peace on earth and eternal life in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ unto eternal life. Amen.